Well, let's do this. Oh, yeah, uh, one-year service, September 17th. Come on, mark your calendars for that. Um, we put out a challenge. Who are you inviting? Be praying about that. You're inviting somebody with you on that uh, 17th. And then on October the 8th will be our next baptism service. If God has done something incredible in your life, uh, you ought to go on and uh, sign up for baptisms. And uh, we'd love to see you take that next step in your walk of faith. And so that's baptisms happening on October the 8th. And we will not be here uh, there's about three Sunday nights a year that we're not able to be here at Hope Fellowship because they do baby dedications, and this is one of those. And so uh, we'll actually be at Eventi that night, and we'll be celebrating baptisms with a lot of people. Let's go. Revelations chapter number 3, verse 14. If you're ready, say, I'm ready. This is what the Word says. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, or to the pastor, angel just simply means messenger. So in this case, it's referring to the pastor. To that pastor, right? These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. Watch, there's no commendation, right? It's kind of like uh, our church two weeks ago. Jesus just went right in. This is a, a, a church with thick skin. He knows they can take it, right? So he goes right in. He says, look, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. Somebody said it's cold in this sanctuary. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am going to spit you out of my mouth. Now watch this. You say I'm rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Now, here we get the counsel, and he's even going to say it. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve so that you, for your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke. Can I read that again? Those whom I love, I rebuke. Can I say it one more time? Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. Those aren't popular words, are they? So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, here's the promise. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, not only to the church of Laodicea, but also to our church today. Let's pray one more time. Lord, thank you for this word. Open every ear, open every heart, open every mind to receive of your word. Change us and challenge us today in Jesus' name. Come on, and everybody said amen, amen, and amen. Come on, can you all put me your hands together and help me thank Landon? We appreciate you, man. Thank you so much. Man, I, I genuinely hope that you guys have enjoyed this series. Uh, out of all the series that I've preached in, in 20 years of, of preaching, this is probably one of the one of my favorite sermon series that uh, that I've ever preached, and if you hang around Restoration long enough, I can guarantee you, you'll 
This is one that you'll hear again in the future. Uh, but every time I go back and I, I re-preach a series, we'll add to it. We'll make it make it better. We'll take a deeper dive on things, new revelations that that come from the Word. But I hope that you've in, enjoyed it. Um, and I, I just I'm excited about what God has spoken to us as we've looked at these early church plants. And so I kind of just wanted to review. Uh, where we've been over the last, uh, this is our seventh week, and I just want to review where we've been. So we started with the church at Ephesus, and the church at Ephesus was this. It was the loveless church, the loveless church. They had lost their first love, and because they had lost their first love, they became very hard on sin, but they were not loving the sinner. And so they became a judgmental people because they fell out of love with Jesus. And if we fall out of love with Jesus, then we become judgmental, pious, righteous Christians rather than being loving and welcoming to all the hurting, broken, and lost. We don't want to be the church at Ephesus. Then there was a church at Smyrna, and the church at Smyrna was the persecuted church. This was the church that remained faithful in hard times. If you'll remember, their pastor was Polycarp, who was burned at the stake, and they were going to even nail him to the stake. And he said, there's no need to nail me to the stake. I'll stay on. He said, if my God has been faithful to me for all these years, he'll be faithful to me even now. And he preached while he was burned at the stake. Then there was the church at Pergamum. And Pergamum was the compromising church. They allowed false doctrine to remain in their church, and they didn't confront it. They allowed it to stay. They compromised on the truth. Then there was a church at Thyatira, and this is known as the tolerant church. They allowed sin to manipulate and rule in their lives, and that's what sin wants to do. It wants to manipulate us and rule us in our lives. Then there was the church at Sardis. Sardis was the dead church. Their reputation didn't match the state of their heart because they had a reputation of being alive, but Jesus said, you are dead. Then we have Philadelphia, which is the faithful church. This was a church that was on mission. This was a church that Jesus had no rebuke for. Much like the church of Smyrna, there was no rebuke for these two churches. Instead, He commended them for being a church on mission, a church after God's heart. And tonight, we got the Church of Laodicea. If you missed any of those weeks, they're all available on podcast. I encourage you to to go back. So tonight's is, is possibly the most famous of all the letters. This is one of those passages of scriptures that you've probably heard quoted and maybe even misquoted in church. And I gotta be honest, I've preached this one wrong. Before I knew the... Uh, contextual context of this passage of Scripture, I didn't always preach this the right way because you've probably heard this preach. How many of you have heard this, uh, that if you're neither hot nor cold, I'll spew you out of my mouth? How many of you have heard this passage of Scripture? Because this is, this is one that is preached a lot, and you've probably heard it preached in the way to where somebody would say that God either wanted us to be hot, like on fire for God, or cold, living for the devil, but uh, doesn't want you in between because you're a bad witness, right? How, how many of you have heard it preached that way? You heard it preached? I've, I've heard it preached. I've actually, I'm on, I preached it that way one time. Lord, I'm sorry. I preached it that way one time. And because when you read it, it's really easy just to 
glance over this and go, okay, what does that mean? And if you sit and you just try to figure it out in your own thoughts or in your, you go, okay, this is, this is what that means, but we're going we're gonna to take a deeper look at that tonight because that is not what it means. We'll get there, though. So let's get to know the city better. Every week we've taken a look at the city. Let's get to know the city better and understand why Jesus said the things that he said to the city. Laodicea was the wealthiest of all the seven cities. It had one of the largest gold mines nearby, which fueled its economy. In fact, it was home to the largest bank of its time. It also boasted the largest med school of its day. It specifically focused on ophthalmology. People would come from all around to buy an eye salve that they would sell that helped eyes going blind. It was also known for its clothing or its clothing industry. It was a producer of a black wool, which was desired by many and most cities because most every other city or community was producing a white wool, but they produced a black wool. As I'm naming out some of the things that the city is famous for, I'm sure that you can probably already begin to draw some parallels in this verse and in this chapter as to why Jesus was saying what he was saying. So let's take a look at it in verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So let me give you an explanation on this. Laodicea was a sophisticated city for its time because they had both access to warm water and cold water. They had a plumbing system to where they would bring warm water from a nearby city, Hierapolis, that you could still go online. You should, you should see the pictures because the warm springs still exist to this day. And they've even like, it's the mountain all around these warm springs is so calcified because of all the, the, the minerals that come up from the earth in these hot springs. But what they had done is that they had taken clay and lead pipes and they had run it from Hierapolis all the way down to Laodicea so that they could have warm water or hot water. And then they had another city, Colossae. Anybody recognize that name? There was a letter written to them. Colossians is the book of the Bible. And their city had cold wells. So what they would do is they would take the water and they would bring the cold water in from Colossae and they would take the hot, hot water from Hierapolis, and they would take these, and so they would be able to have hot water and cold water. But here's what happened. The cities were so far away that the time that the hot water got to them, it was lukewarm. And by the time that the cold water got to them from Colossae, what had happened is that the cold water was lukewarm. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of you love a good lukewarm beverage? Anybody? I don't think anybody likes lukewarm water. Any coffee drinkers in the house? Any coffee addicts in the house? Be honest. The altar, here it is after service, all right? I, I, am a, I'm, I may be a self 
self-professed coffee addict, and every morning, I love my coffee hot. I don't care what the temperature is outside. I want to start my day with a hot cup of coffee. In fact, don't talk to me until I've had my coffee. I'm not awake. I'm not, I just, I, give me that coffee and a little bit of the Holy Spirit, and I'm good to go for the rest of the day. And so I need, I need my Bible, and I need, I need my coffee in the morning. But how many of you know after you let that coffee sit on the counter, and ladies are famous for this, they let that coffee, I make Shannon coffee, and she'll just let it sit there, and then she's got to pop it in the microwave and heat it back up. Why? Because you don't want a lukewarm drink. And you may take your coffee iced. How many of you like iced coffee in the summer? Starbucks is in business because you like your iced coffee. And you either want your coffee, you want it steaming hot or you want it cold, but you don't want anywhere in between. Because if you've taken that iced coffee and you left it in the car and it just kind of got like tempered room temperature, how many of you are like, oh, yes, I can't wait for a room temperature coffee? That sounds amazing. And it's exactly what Jesus was speaking to. Remember, in every city, in every instance, he was speaking to them in a way that they would understand. And he said, because you're neither hot nor cold, you're not useful for anything. You're lukewarm. And that's why he says, I would rather you be hot, because if you're hot, you're useful for something. If you're cold, you're useful for something. But if you're just lukewarm, I just want to spit you out of my mouth. And that's what this passage of Scripture is talking about, is that God says, I want you to be useful. I don't want you to be in between because the in between, just you just want to spew it out of your mouth. And not only that, but there was so much sediment that would be in the water that it had this awful, terrible taste. And, and I should have shown the pictures because they're still, they've dug up the clay pipes that were underground. And you can just see all of the calcification that was there on the bottom of those pipes where it was just full of sediment. And it was said that when you would taste the water, you would just want to spew it out of your mouth. The water became useful for nothing. Can I tell you that our sole purpose as a Christian is to be useful by God? And when we come to a place in our life to where we're not hot or we're not cold, where God can't use us, that's when he says, I just want to spit you out of my mouth. And as a church, he was warning them that, look, I know your deeds, that you've gotten to a place where you're comfortable. You've gotten to a place where you're coasting. You've gotten to a place where everything is okay, where you just go through the motions and maybe check all the boxes and you do all the things that on the outside look like, you know, oh, this is good. This is good. Yep, I'm, everything is under control. But God says, look, I know your deeds, that you're not hot and you're not cold. And because you're not, you're not making an impact. And how many of you know that God wants a church that makes an impact? So what's the point? Hot water is useful and refreshing. Cold water is useful and refreshing, but no one wants anything lukewarm. God was telling the church at Laodicea that they had become useless. They had lost their effectiveness. They were no longer refreshing to non-believers because I love the way that Psalm 34, 8 says, it says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How does the world taste and see that the Lord is good? Through your life. 
How does the world taste and see that the Lord is good? Because they may never step inside the doors of a church, but when we step outside the doors of the church and we're hot and we're on fire for God, guess what? They look at us and they see us and we're refreshing to a hurt, lost, and dying world. We're, we're, like, we're like pipes flowing outside of the church that brings refreshing to the world that we live in. But if we're not hot, if we're not cold, we're useless. And God would look at us and see, say, I need you to be one or the other. That that way when you go into the world, that the world can taste and see that I am good. Come on, somebody say amen. So he, he looks at the church and he says, if you're not going to be like the hot waters from Hierapolis, if you're not going to be like the cold waters from Colossae, and if you end up lukewarm and full of sediment, I want to spit you out of my mouth. Why? Because you become ineffective in your community. You become ineffective in the world. So Jesus speaks to an ineffective church, and this is what he tells them. He says this. He says, you say I'm rich and I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Here's the reason that they had lost their effectiveness they had everything that they wanted and needed. Listen to me. They placed their trust in their selves and their ability to earn wealth. They got comfortable and they put their relationship with God on the back burner. And it's easy when we reach and achieve a place of success that we can forget the God that got us here. Because the Bible says that he is the one who gives us the ability to earn wealth. And that every blessing that we have flows from God. And that we can get so comfortable and think, look, look at what I've done. Look at how I've, look at this life that I have made. I've got the picture perfect postcard family. I've got the car. I've got the house. I've got everything that I need. And this church got in a place where they got comfortable and they put God on the back burner. I imagine that this church was a church that started forsaking the house of the Lord, that started forsaking the assembling together of the believers. I believe that this was a church that probably started putting this book down and not reading it as much. And at night and in the morning, stopped praying as much as maybe what they used to. This was a church that started backsliding sliding away from God, but God in his loving kindness comes to the church at Laodicea and says, look, you've either got to get uh, hot or cold so that that way you can be refreshing to the world that you live in. I don't know about you, but does this sound like anything to you? For me, it sounds like our city because we've got the houses, we've got the cars, we've got the picture perfect family. And it can be really easy for people to say these words, why do I need the church? But can I tell you that that's a question as a pastor that I've heard more times than I've ever wanted to hear. Why do I need the church? And I think especially in our city, especially in our metroplex, we have to answer the question, why do I need the church? Here's our answer to that question. Because in Jesus, the church is where we connect to Jesus, and in Jesus, that's the way we build 
better lives. This is the whole mission of our church. And you're going to hear us say this once a month, twice a month, maybe every week, because I never want us to forget our mission that, that no matter where we're at in life, the addition of Jesus makes everything better. You can have the most expensive home in Frisco, but if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. You can have the, the most beautiful Christmas family photo card that you send out to everybody, but if we don't have Jesus, we don't have anything. You can drive the nicest car and break necks when you drive down Legacy and rev your engine. Isn't that annoying? But if you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. So when anybody asked the question to me, why do I need the church? My answer is, the addition of Jesus will only make your life better. Because you could be on the opposite side of the spectrum and say, I don't have anything. I'm struggling from paycheck to paycheck. My car is broke down. My family is broke down. The addition of Jesus will only make it better. Am I telling you that immediately you're getting a new car? I'm not. But what I'm telling you is that when you're riding with the windows down and worship blasting, the addition of Jesus just made that car ride a lot better. Am I telling you everything's going to turn around in an instant? No, this Christianity is not some magic dust that you sprinkle over your life. But the addition of Jesus makes everything better. Because earthly possessions don't, don't amount to happiness. Success can't buy eternal life, and none of those things are bad. But if you pull away from your relationship with Christ and it makes us ineffective as a church, then we need to become refreshing to the world again. Come on, somebody say amen. Because watch this. This is, this is so interesting. In 17 AD, Laodicea suffered a, a massive earthquake that destroyed much of the city. And because they were part of the Roman Empire, Caesar came in and he offered to help rebuild the city. He said, we're going to send Roman funds in to help rebuild this city. And watch what Laodicea said to Caesar. They said, we don't need you. And what does Jesus say? He said, you say you have no need for me because you're wealthy. Jesus directly comes to them. He says, look, you think that you're wealthy. Let's, in fact, let's go, let's go to this. I want to read it. He said, but you don't realize that you're wretched, that you're pitiful, that you're poor, that you're blind, and you're naked. Jesus comes back, and he addresses everything that they were known for and that they were successful for. Look, you've got the largest bank in your area and all of Asia. You've got gold. You've got access to everything you quote-unquote need, but you don't have me. And if you don't have me, you're poor, you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're blind, and you're naked. Because Mark 8.36 says it this way, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? Listen, we can accumulate wealth and things and, and have all of this, but if we don't have Jesus, we don't have anything. In fact, 1 Peter 1.18 through 19 would say it this way, for you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from an empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, 
But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, there is one thing that can save us. There is one thing that can make us right. There is one thing that can redeem us, and his name is Jesus. We can't buy our way into heaven. We can't work our way into heaven. We, there's nothing that we can do to earn grace and salvation. It only comes through Jesus. Because you can acquire wealth and fame and a huge savings account. You can have multiple cars and a huge social media following. You can have a large net worth. You can be CEO or CFO or the president of your company. But if your life isn't built on Jesus, we don't have anything. Because what we need is to build our lives on Jesus. It's why our mission is building better lives, because the addition of Jesus makes everything better. Be the CEO, but don't do it without Jesus. Lead that Fortune 500 company, but don't do it without Jesus. Make millions, but not without Jesus. Lead your family, but not without Jesus. Have the picture-perfect family, but not without Jesus. Jesus. Be a fashion icon. Be a social influencer, but not without Jesus. Don't do it without Jesus, because Jesus is the only way to build better lives. Amen? So Jesus speaks through the apostle John. He's on the island of Patmos, and he says, write him this letter. Say, you say you have no need for me. But what you don't realize is that you're wretched, you're pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. And so he says this, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to to put on your eyes so, so you can see. Because what you got to understand is that when Jesus was saying this, he hit them right where they thought that they were succeeding. We've got the largest med school. People come from all over to to have their eyes sealed. People come to learn and, and go out and be doctors. We've got the greatest bank. People come to us for financing and lending, and we've we've got all of it. You're producing clothes that that are desired everywhere. You've got this black wool that that everybody wants, but Jesus said, you think that you have it all, but really you're wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked. Why? Because you have said that you have no need of me. You think you have the biggest bank. You think you have all the talents and ability to heal people's eyesight and produce some of the best stuff with your talents, but Jesus said, I am the only thing that makes you good. Can I say it again? Jesus says, I am the only thing that makes you good. It's not our money. It's not our talents. It's not our looks. Only God can make us good. Jesus told it to his disciples this way as he was teaching. He said, you know, the the birds are fed. Clothes are, or the fields are all clothed. And when you're seeking all these things, you're seeking the wrong thing. And Jesus told him this way. He said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. 
we talked about this last week, and, and it's, it's kingdom. It's, it was eternal over temporal, and that if we'll pursue God and seek God, that if we'll attach our will and our plan to his plan, that he's going to open doors for us that no man can open, and, and he'll close the doors that, that no man can, can open, and he's going to open up great opportunity when we connect it to God's kingdom plan and purpose. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 6, He said, seek first the kingdom. Seek first the eternal, the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else that your heart desires will be added unto you. I'm not telling you that money's bad tonight. Money is not bad. And the Bible, in fact, doesn't say that money is bad. It says that the love of money is the root of all evil. It doesn't say money itself is evil. In fact, I believe that God wants to bless us in a way that we can finance the kingdom and send missionaries all over the world and, and, and feed the homeless right here in our area and put clothing on people's back and the missions that God calls us to. We can help fund those things and we can build a church that, that grows community and gives people a safe space to, to find freedom and healing and restoration. I believe that God wants us to do that. Money is not evil, but the love of money can take over our lives. And when we get into a place that we put God on the back burner, that's when it becomes, becomes dangerous. I'm going to ask that the band comes back. Because money, talents, clothes, possession, none of these are bad. But if we get so comfortable in our lives because of a status that we have reached, we're in danger of making God sick to his stomach. And I don't know about you. I don't, I don't want to live my life that way. I want to please God, and it only happens if I make him my top priority. I want you to watch this. Verse number 19. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. He says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. And you've probably read this verse and you've probably thought, oh, this is to sinners. This is to people far from God. Who is Jesus writing this letter to? The church. Who is the church made up of? Believers. And so Jesus writes this letter. And he says, number one, look, I love you so much that I'll rebuke and discipline. That I'm going to get you back on the path when you need to be back on the path. That when we wander away and we've put our relationship with him on the back burner, maybe you've experienced that rebuke from God. Maybe you've experienced that discipline, but it's not something that should cause us to become angry or mad at God, but it is something that should drive us back to our knees and be earnest and repent. And then he says this, he said, look, I'm standing at the door and I'm knocking on your heart saying, let me back in. Can you picture this just for a moment? Jesus standing at the doors of churches all over the world, knocking and going, hey, can I come back into my house? You've kicked me out. Can I just come back in? Can I have my place back in your heart? Can I have my place back in your life? And maybe that's you tonight. Maybe you're in that place where 
God is just steady, standing at your heart, knocking, going, hey, I love you. Let me back in. I know other priorities, and I know other things have taken my place, but let me back in. Let me back in your heart. Let me back in your life. Let me back in your decision-making process. Let me back in your thought life. Let me back in your marriage. Let me back in your mind. And that little knocking is what I would call the Holy Spirit. Standing at your heart going, just let me back in. And now look, I believe that God also stands at the heart of sinners and he does the same thing. And he'll knock. Tonight, I believe that he's standing at the heart of believers. And he's just going, hey, just let me back in. I, just let me back in. Because he wants to come and he wants to be with you. And he follows it up with that and he says, whoever hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in, and I love the way the King James says it. The King James says, I'll come in, and I'll sup with you. Anybody still call it supper? Just me. I'm from Alabama. It's all good. He says, I'll come in, and I'll, I'll sup with you. And this word in the, the Greek and really even into the original word that back in the Hebrew of dining and this Jewish concept, you know, today when we eat, Man, we eat, we're on the run, right? It's like we get in, we got a mission, it's to get food in our belly so we can get to the next thing. We do lunch appointments, and we come in, and we sit down with somebody, and we eat, and then we're on to the next thing. And this idea in Jewish culture of, of dining is not just like, a, come in, sit, I got to go. No, Jesus says, I want to come in. And, and their dinners were like these three-hour dinners. I'm so ADD. I could not do a three-hour dinner. I would be done like an hour in. I'm like, all right, what's next? We're breaking out games. What are we doing? What's... And Jesus says, he's like, I want to come in and I want to spend time with you. I want to be with you. I want to be your top priority. I want to be your focus. I want to come into your world. I want to invade your space and not just have like these brief moments with you. No, I want to have real communion and intimacy with you. I, I want to sit and dine with you and get to know you and, and you to get to know me. But too many times we have this like, fast food version of Jesus that we want to show up on church on a Sunday night, go through the drive-thru, say, hey, uh, I'll take a number one. We go to the window, we get it, and then we go on our way. But the real concept behind this is that Jesus says, I just want to take time and be with you. And how do we encounter real change is when we'll take time and we'll just be with him. We'll clear out some time in our schedule more than just five or 10 or 15 minutes. And we go, God, I just I just want to be with you. I just need you. 